Last week, we talked about Jesus being tested by the Pharisees about divorce, and he gives us teaching about celibacy. We also talked about the little children coming to be blessed by Jesus, and then we looked at the story of the rich young man or the rich young ruler. We got into a little bit of a tussle trying to debate when is divorce allowable, which wasn't really even the purpose of that part so much. But I want to put something together for you here. Matthew has arranged this text, especially in chapter 19, and it's important leading into chapter 20, because he's once again going back to this theme that Jesus seems to have over and over about giving up what we think we're entitled to in favor of the kingdom. So his teaching about marriage that seemed to come after the discussion about divorce was really those who are able for the kingdom purposes should probably forego marriage, but not many are going to be able to do this. But notice the way we think of it. We think of marriage as something like I'm entitled to, and Jesus spends a good amount of time promoting marriage and saying that this is part of God's plan, but there are some who should consider foregoing it for the purpose of the kingdom. And really the application question for us is, how many of us would really think of that? How many of us would think of give, foregoing anything for the kingdom, not just marriage? How many of us would really think of foregoing a, a dream of ours? How many of us would forego material comfort or even safety, even our own lives? All of these things are things that Jesus demands at one point or other of his disciples. And we see that over and over. And I don't want to miss that point in spending so much time looking at, well, what does he mean and why is this significant? To forget for a moment that if we're studying this to gain something from this, that we need to rediscover in part what discipleship is about. And we have a hard time giving up anything. Some of us are on that road, so I don't want to overgeneralize. But in one area or another, we should be able to very quickly call to mind something that's hard for us to give up for the kingdom. And just kind of let that sit there for a second. I mean, we're not talking about giving everything away to the point of us being in need. But everything is to be held up with open hands and stewardship for the kingdom. And I think this is an area we seldom think of. The area of marriage. Something that we feel like, well, that may be something I want to do. And we seldom stop for a moment and say, yeah, Jesus' comment was for some. That may be something that you give up for the sake of the kingdom. That's why the story of the little children is so important, because we said that this brings to mind somebody that is of humble posture. Again, he's driving towards the point the disciples are to be humble, and the rich young man who's asked to give up everything and sell to the poor and come follow Jesus. Again, another example of give up something for my sake and follow me. He was unable to do it. And that left us with Peter's question about what will be there for us then if we gave up everything and followed you. And we're going to see that come back as we move into chapter 20. Let's start with chapter 20. We're going to be covering the workers in the vineyard, a parable. Jesus then predicts his death for the third time in Matthew. We're going to look at a mother's request on behalf of her sons, again for position, which is ironic. And then we're going to end with two blind men receiving sight. Let's start with chapter 20. Jesus tells this parable, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. 
He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Now this is a classic setup of the parable. Just a couple easy points to see. One thing is the vineyard for many people listening to him symbolized kind of a, a vision of Israel. That was a common device in parables was to use the vineyard for Israel. So they might feel like, okay, he's going to lead us into some discussion about our place. But if you notice here, you've got what is this kind of an unlikely situation. Here this landowner is waiting till the last minute almost to realize that he needs more workers. Most of them would have planned out better than that. But for the sake of the parable, he seems to constantly go back to the marketplace to find more workers. You see here that these people are standing around doing nothing, the word is translated. A better way to translate it would be that they have no work. In fact, it's explained later when he says, why have you been standing here all day? They say, because no one has hired us. This is significant in the parable. We tend to miss it. The significance in the parable is these people wouldn't eat if it wasn't for the fact that he was hiring them. When they say we're doing nothing or we're standing around waiting for someone to employ us, it means that they're not going to get their daily wage. There is no welfare. There is nothing to fall back on. There's no unemployment. Like if you don't make your daily wage, basically you're not going to have anything to eat. So in this particular case, that's what's going on. He's coming out to the marketplace and he's in one sense extending generosity to even allow people to come in halfway through the day. Notice he says he's going to pay them what is right. The first people know what they're getting paid, a denarius. The rest figure in their minds we're going to get some percentage of that because we're not working a full day. Parable continues. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired around the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. So there's the grumble. It's pretty simple to understand. They feel like this is somehow unjust to pay everyone equally. Does it tug against your sense of fairness? Well, because it seems that wages paid should be based on work done. And if more work was done by some people, then they should get more money. People who do less work, I guess more importantly, should get less money. Okay, yeah. I think the people that were hired first would feel like the people that were hired last were actually profited off of them because they feel like, okay, we could have worked that hour ourselves and then the rest of the work and just made all the money, but instead you took the money you gave to them well, we did the work, so that's kind of, it's kind of unfair. There are no greater people who understand the concept of fairness in my mind than Americans. Like, we are a people who are incensed by things that are somehow just not fair. 
I think it begins when you're a kid in like nursery school and someone cuts into line. Like I think most of us carry that with us our whole life. Like if you're at the movies now, even now, and someone cuts into line, nobody has to say anything. The whole line just shivers. You can just feel it. Like everybody behind that person back knows that an injustice has been committed of the gravest <laughs> offense, right? And people will actually look at each other sometimes. They'll look knowing, like, you won't look at anybody in Southern California for any reason. But if someone cuts in line, people start looking at each other and nodding, like, you see that? You see that? You see that? Like, we're all in this together. Like, we understand the gross injustice that has just occurred. I don't think the people listening to Jesus had a different reaction. In fact, they were probably surprised by the ending because he said that he was going to pay to those people what was right. So they were probably thinking in their mind, the people in parable land who were being hired, but also the listeners of this parable were thinking, right, you would be paid a portion of a day's wage. Everyone, by the way, knew that a denarius was a fair day's wage. It was kind of the minimum that you could pay for a full day. So if you hire someone in the, in the 11th hour, literally at 5 o'clock in the afternoon when you're going to shut down at 6, those people are working for one hour. They're probably going to get a percentage in their mind, and the listeners of the parable were thinking the same way. So the ending comes as a surprise, not just to these people who seem to be grumbling, but probably to the listeners of the parable. They're thinking that doesn't seem fair either. Jesus, of course, is setting up this parable specifically to have this discussion. Remember, he's talking about the first will be last and the last will be first. That's the line that ends chapter 19 that leads us into this chapter. And remember, we're going to see in a moment, He's also, in some way, responding to Peter's question. So back to the parable, the master of the vineyard. But he answered one of them, friend. And by the way, that use of friend is kind of like the way we'd say, hey, bud. You know, like it's a little bit of a distancing word, not an endearing word. Friend, am I not being unfair to you? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And then he comments on that parable as he often does with a closing statement. So the last will be first and the first will be last. So let's just talk about the parable itself. There's a lot that you can pull out of this ending part. But in the context of discussing first and last, I think Jesus is first demonstrating a lavish type of generosity because, of course, the master of the vineyard represents God. That he will actually give to people what they don't deserve. We call that grace. So he's demonstrating that even what we think is fair, what we decide is fair, and how we decide justice should go that God will sometimes lavish us with more than that or more than we've even asked for or expected. And that he has the right to do that and often does. But also the fact here that there's a response to this grumbling that we often have about fairness. And I've heard it this way. Maybe you've thought about it. I've heard people say, like, it doesn't make sense that you could serve God most of your life and then have somebody who doesn't deserve it at the end of their life, suddenly discover God and get the same thing that I'm getting. Presumably what they're talking about is some way to get to heaven. Or this should ring true to us because Peter has just asked this question. 
just back in chapter 19, after hearing the story of the rich young ruler and how difficult it is for the rich to get into heaven, and Jesus kind of giving a call to give things up, Peter is asking, what about us? We gave up everything to follow you. What do we get? So Jesus tells him, I tell you the truth, the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, those of you who followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and then he gives the general to all the disciples listening and all the people who are there, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But he adds that same qualifier. But many are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. In a way, telling this parable could be a reminder to Peter as well. Hey, it is true that you left everything for me, Peter. And it is true that you will meet your end in a very difficult way and martyrdom after you do difficult things to get the church started. But you in the end may get exactly the same as the people who come later may be one way to understand this parable. And that could be a response to Peter, but it's actually a response more to us. Because we sometimes find that things should operate on our version of fairness. And I felt that sometimes myself too. I've actually heard it questioned to me as I've talked to other people about God. I don't understand how a murderer or a child molester or anyone else at the last moments of their life could somehow accept God. That doesn't make sense. Or though troubled by something like the thief on the cross story when Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Like, why? Why? Why does somebody get to do that when I've labored my whole life to follow Christ? Or tried the difficult parts of discipleship and somebody else gets the easier task of just showing up at the 11th hour? I think Peter could have asked that same thing too. But there's a response given in this parable that just really demonstrates first and foremost that God is a generous God who gives us more than what we deserve, but does so in a way that surprises us and in a way that we probably would think, hey, it would be just as fair if you just divided up the wage. You'd still be a fair God. And Jesus has that ringing part of the editorial to me that says, are you envious because I am generous? I almost hear Jesus' own sense and tinge of that in his speaking. Like, why are you envious? Is it just because I'm so generous? Why do you begrudge this? All right? The literal translation of this, are you envious, is kind of like, why do you cast the evil eye? The Eastern societies always believe in the idea of the evil eye. Like somebody could actually bring calamity to you by being envious of what you have. So people are always trying to avoid what we would call the evil eye, but they would call the gaze. Like, just don't let, let people put the gaze upon you because that will bring you bad luck for those things, okay? So that's the parable that I think sets up again an interesting approach, not just in response to Peter, but in response to our own ideas of God's fairness. Yeah? I think the part that I struggle with, at least in a parable, and maybe a little bit in real-life non-parable is... You know, knowing the system works like that, or the economy works like that, or what have you, it's hard to feel like the motivation for getting in early is lessened when you know that, that you could just theoretically kind of hold off, hold off, do whatever you want, and then come in at the end. And I, I don't really like fault God for really being that way, but it, it, I don't know, it causes me to just question it. 
I think it's a fair question. Like, it could serve as a disincentive, right? I mean, you could just say, what's the point of coming in early, right? I think a couple responses I would make is, one, how do we judge what's early? Like, you could be on the 11th hour of your life, and none of us know that right now. Uh, and I may not show up next week because I was in the 11th hour and 59th minute. And I didn't know. So it's hard for us to judge early. But the other thing is it seems a little bit mercenary on my thinking to pursue Jesus just for that day's wage and reward. I mean, clearly he is identifying a kind of reward that we equate in this parable to eternal life. And the reason for that is it's significant to understand that those workers who were not working, he is literally in some way saving them because they would go hungry that night. So he's, his, his generosity is actually a, a kind of a salvific generosity. He's saving them from a dire consequence. But I think that we would probably all agree that there are other reasons and maybe better reasons that we should give our obedience and follow Christ in discipleship than just, well, what am I going to get out of it? And if I'm going to get the same as everybody else, and I knew that, which of course these people didn't, but even if I know that, you told me this parable, now you've let me in on the secret, I'm just going to wait till the last minute. I would say you don't know when the last minute is, and second, I don't think that's the point anyway, is to see if I could do the least possible discipleship and still get the same reward. I would think that Christ would say, following me is worthy because I'm God, follow me. And don't worry about the people who come in later. And I actually think that's more the point because somebody like Peter and others, even us, you know, there are people that like are just coming into the kingdom perhaps that we could look at and say like, they live, they party, they, and we go back to that fairness again. Like they just cut in line. And I think Jesus is saying like, why are you worried about them? Why are you worried that I would give the same to them? Shouldn't you just be overjoyed that you got your day's wage or that you are going to follow me or that you would receive eternal life? Surly? Well, you could, let's say, I'm assuming it's a 12-hour day, right? So you could have paid him one-twelfth of the denarius. But in the case of heaven, heaven is a make-or-break thing. You can't make it one-twelfth to heaven. You're either in or you're out. And if you're out, then... Well, you're going to hell, so he's actually being generous by letting them in in a situation where he can't like give them just part of the reward. He has to give it all or nothing. Okay, here's my only response. I think everything you said is right. I'll just add a layer on here just because we're in this parable. A lot of people, including myself, believe that there are various rewards that you receive in heaven, like there's various degrees of reward, that getting to heaven is the greatest joy of all. Being in Christ's presence forever is the greatest joy. But he seems to frequently talk about rewards, and so does Paul. I've talked about that before, and I've highlighted that. We've actually done whole series and parts of the retreat that dealt with verses about it. But one interesting thing I'll point out that demurs to my own viewpoint is one of the commentators I respect the most in, about the book of Matthew actually thinks that this parable says that there are no uh, levels of reward and that everybody's going to be equal. And... I bring that up because normally my response to you would be, well, I think there's still something else other than just getting in or out. There's still all these different scriptures that we look at that talk about the reward of stewardship and what you get for having lived a faithful life. And that people who don't engage in those things, maybe they'll still get into heaven, but they won't get that. And I want to at least point out that a minority view, but a one that I respect very much is 
maybe that's not even true, so your issue is still there. Philip? One of the things that I'm confused about in reading this, it seems the um, people who hired first, like their complaint seems valid, um, and then the response also seems valid to it as well. It's sort of like, hey, I'm, what they received is totally fair to them. It's only they don't seem it's fair when they're comparing it to like these other people that um, he chooses to be generous to. Um, but I feel like that's almost like a dancing around the issue answer to it because if like God chooses to be generous to some people, like that's great. But then why is he choosing to be generous to them and just fair to me? Like there's some of you were still at the level of like, I mean, I was even comparing it and just, if I used a real life example, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to teach all my students the amount that I get paid for to teach them. But then like these students, I'll say, you guys can come after school. I'll give you extra help, but I'm not going to help the rest of you. Like, I feel like they would still have right to complain, even though I'm saying, well, I'm giving you the amount of teaching you deserve. They're just getting more for whatever reason, because I feel like giving them more. And I just, I don't know, it seems strange to me, because it still seems like the, the issue isn't answered. Like, just saying, well, because you got what you've, I don't know. I, and so I'm not sure how to deal with it. No, I, I could tell you that part of the answer lies in the fact that all of them didn't deserve to work, and all of them got to work. So in a way, he was actually being generous to all of them just by letting them work. But that still doesn't answer your concern. And the only thing I would say in response is, I don't think it's supposed to. The fact that you're bothered by that, that he gives people their day's wage to everyone, regardless of how much they work, they still all got the full day's wage, is supposed to kind of leave us with that bothered feeling. Because it's reminding us that, yes, there are people in this life that God will bless more than others. It's just a fact. This parable seems to highlight that, even as he's speaking it, but we know it just from looking around. We know that that happens. The question is, though, like, how is our reaction to it? And this parable is actually more about the reaction than the fact that it solves the issue for us and says, look, he's just generous. He gives everybody a full day's wage. It's really dealing with our attitudes. And I think you're right. It does kind of make us feel like, yeah, but if he's so generous, and he would have given those guys like five denarius just because he could. And that's what they were expecting, right? Because they thought, well, if he's going to be that generous to those people, then for me, and that's exactly the point, because we're always thinking that way. Well, then what's fair for me? And we get back to that entitlement again, which is exactly what chapters 19 and 20 are trying to push against, and it highlights that feeling. Yeah, AJ. Um, just kind of, I mean, my natural, you know, the natural human reaction I have is also, oh, this is unfair, this is unfair, but kind of, um, seeing a little bit further also as, um, kind of, and you kind of touched on a little bit, was that, um, you know, not to worry about what other people are getting or not, or what I'm getting as opposed to what other people are getting. If everybody gets the same wage and that's paralleling everybody getting into heaven equally, um, that should be the ultimate goal, you know, is that, hey, I want everybody who can be saved to be saved, you know. You know, they can get fed today too, then by all means. It doesn't mean I don't get fed, I already work all day, you know. So I think um, I think our natural human instinct is to say, oh, that's unfair, and where's the union, you know, or something like that, you know. But I think kind of it goes a little bit further to say that we should, we should be happy that everyone is, is being taken care of, because our Father is so generous. Dick Jeremy? I, I think... Uh... But it's like a more practical application being the idea that if it's true that God provides everything for us, and if that maybe comes in different forms through a job, through income, through the ability to work, I think we might need to check ourselves and say, well, wait a minute. Like, if we're talking about what it means to have a spirit of generosity in the same way that God gives us 
or treats us generously, and maybe it's unfair. I mean, maybe we're the ones at the eleventh hour, and we don't know that. So, in, in essence, we could be the ones who are who are creating the unfairness. Then, in the same way, shouldn't we have a perspective more like that uh, when we think about um, things that relate to money in society that we think are unfair? Uh, but in the same way, we should be as generous. We, we should be as willing to part with the resources we've been given because it's simply the right thing to do. It doesn't. It doesn't matter in, in a sense um, how much or how little work that person did. What matters is the right thing to do is to be generous and and, and to participate in that willingly. Because, but for the grace of God, there go I. Is the is the thing that we've heard over and over, right? I could be in that situation. God has somehow provided in my life. Like a lot of us think we make our own fortunes. I think we believe that, especially because that's part of the American mythology that we all buy into is that we make our own fortunes. But we have not determined the place we were born, the parents we were given, the opportunities we have. Some of us, not even the educations we had. Like we've had so many different things that have been given to us that were beyond our control that we are often grudging like this person. And I've heard it all the time when they go, well, I don't know if I should give that person. That person really isn't doing much to to get themselves out of a situation, or I'm not really sure what they're going to do with this, or what does that organization do anyway? I don't think it's just giving because it's the right thing to do. It's giving because we ourselves have been given. And if you read, for example, David's speech when he is raising money for the temple, he bases his entire Thanksgiving speech on the fact that I thank God for the privilege of giving back what he has given to us already. Like, who are we to even give to you? You're the one that has given everything to us. We rarely take that position. I think if we did, our hand would be a lot more open and a lot more free. Also, like, something I find interesting is that even just the attitude towards work for the people who did work, that now that they would grumble at the end of the day, but thinking about if we do really want to follow Christ, like, if we really want to do that, that's like not an easy road and we should know that. And so I think it's interesting, like, just this attitude, like, this very negative attitude towards work, but I think that is a lot of a follower of Christ. Like it's going to be hard and it's going to be a lot of labor, and but it's this negative attitude. Well, why can't I do less if other people are okay doing less? Then why can I do less? But it shouldn't be like well, I should be doing more. You know, that's the attitude of true gratefulness, right? Like for what you've given to me, life, eternal life, without end in this parable, a day's wages so I can feed my family. I mean, that's the parallel. What you've given to me, I should just be grateful. I agree. But we end up thinking about it in terms of like, well, how much do I do for it? And that's weird on both sides, either because we're worried about what other people have done or because some of us actually feel that the right response is just to earn it backwards somehow. And that's actually antithetical to grace, but we tend to do it anyway. It's ingrained in us to try to somehow do that. Certainly. As it relates to this uh, parable here on earth, you know, when these people work, it does seem pretty unfair to me. But something that kind of strikes me when he says, you know, you're envious because I'm generous, I think from a supreme being's point of view, as he's looking down, he doesn't only see your labor, he sees what you would have done, what you could have done, he sees through all the strife you've had, he sees through your heart, through your mind. So, in the end, what may not seem fair in our dimension to us ends up actually being fair because we don't see what 
God saves. Okay. Last comments? Mark, and then we'll go to Randy. Um, I also think it's interesting that he intentionally has the people who worked all day get paid last so that they actually see that the people who arrived last are paid first. If he had paid the people who arrived for first first and they went on their way, they wouldn't have seen it. Why do you think he did that? I don't know. I think it's because, first of all, it's in the parable, so he's setting it up as a device, you know. But it's because he's trying to make that last point. The first will be last and last will be first. He's trying to actually set it up so that those people can grumble and he could lead to his conclusion. But yeah, he could have actually done it a different way, but he wants to create that anxiety by doing it that way. Randy, last comment. Yeah, I just wanted to say too, that if there wasn't the people that worked their whole life and as a disciple of God and everything and put all that work, I don't think there would be those people in the last minutes of their life who decided to turn to God because I mean, they didn't see the example of everybody else who like, how much God did for them in their lives throughout the years. It's a good point. I agree. Although God can still call people, you know, on his own. I mean, there are examples of that. But you're right. For the most part, that is part of it. But it is funny how people who come in at the beginning uh, tend, in, in reality, in some ways, I've seen this, although we would be very loath to admit this, but I've even felt it sometimes. Like, you see somebody who comes into the kingdom later on, and you're kind of like, uh, it's like this weird feeling. Like, I've been doing this my whole life. All right. Just a little confession there. Okay, you want to hear a funny story about this parable? It was really quick. But I actually was part of a, a Bible study of some business people who were not Christian, and we were going through this parable. And the guy forgot it. He kind of mangled it. He couldn't find it in the Bible. But he's a pretty high-level exec. And he goes, you guys, have you ever heard the story of Damaris? <laughs> and he starts telling this parable in a really mangled way, kind of. But he forgot that Denarius was just the wage. He thought there was a guy named Damaris. And he starts telling the story. And he tells them this entire parable. He gets most of it right. And they're sitting around going, like, well, what does it mean? Like, what does it mean? Like, that's really weird. Like, started talking about this thing in the Bible. And a long story short, he ended up calling me, wanting to go through to understand it better so he'd go back and explain to them, like, what this parable meant. And so eventually, weird enough, this parable led this guy to Christ. Very, very powerful thing because when he got to the end and he realized that God's grace was so amazing that it would let people in without regard to human fairness, especially business fairness and all concepts of business incentivizing of employees, that God's wisdom somehow just stunned him. And he eventually, within a few months of like going through these studies, eventually gave his life over to Christ and thought, this wisdom is beyond anything that I've ever seen. So interesting story about this parable. Let's press forward in Matthew. The next thing that Matthew arranges here is another prediction that Jesus gives. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's sitting up on Mount Zion, so they have to start the ascent towards Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, and he takes them aside privately, and he predicts to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, and flogged and crucified, on the third day he will be raised to life. This is Jesus' third direct statement to the disciples about his coming passion. The other two are found in Matthew 16.21 and 17.22. This one actually gives the most detail about what's going to happen. So he's telling them in advance, we're going on this road, this is where it ends for me. And as you know, this whole part of 18, 19, 20, they're on their way to Jerusalem. So they're beginning their march towards the Passion Week that will begin with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem that we'll be covering very soon. 
So this is where we are, and this is Jesus' prediction. Not much of a commentary on it other than just point out what it says, and also that Jesus, again, is telling his disciples in advance what's going to happen, and it's still going to be difficult for them to comprehend it, even though this really couldn't be any clearer of what's coming. In light of this whole discussion that we've been having about the first will be last and the last will be first, and Peter's question about what will be there for us, and Jesus saying you will sit on 12 thrones, which may be figurative or may be literal. We don't know what he's exactly saying to them. But he's saying that everybody who leaves things behind will receive things, probably in this life, maybe in the next life, will inherit eternal life. And all these things about just watch yourself about what you think of yourself and entitlement. Here comes a stunning passage where the mother of James and John wants to make sure that her sons get the best seats in heaven. (laughs) So the sons of Zebedee, by the way, are James and John, the two disciples. So the mother of of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? The cup, you may remember, is a symbol for the suffering that is to come. Jesus said in the garden, even like, let this cup pass from me, when he's pleading with the Father. So they probably understand at least the symbol when he says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. I think the main point is they don't get it on a couple of levels. First of all, when they say, when he says, can you drink from the cup I am going to drink? They're like, sure. That sounds a little strange because maybe we read into the story a little bit more about what Jesus' cup will be. Like, not only will he be flogged and crucified, but he is carrying on him the weight of all the sin of the world. We're reading that into it after the fact. We're reading that into it theologically. But this hasn't even happened in the story, so they're probably not even thinking about that. They don't even know that, even though he's just finished predicting what's going to happen to him. They probably think like, okay, things are going to get tough for you, and we can do it. Why? Because we're thinking of the reward that's in mind. Like, I can be on the left, he can be on the right. It's worth it putting up with a little bit of flogging or whatever it's going to be, right? So I think they don't get it on the level of saying, yeah, we can do it. They probably don't really understand what he's even asking. But even that they could so quickly respond. I think that kind of belies a little bit of what they think. All of us think, oh, yeah, sure, I could suffer for this. I wonder how many of us could really suffer for the sake of Christ without relenting and just giving in. I think we don't really understand that kind of intense, even physical torture and suffering that some people around the world endure every day just for the sake of Christ. But also they don't get it on the level of, what are you asking? He's just finished explaining about the first and the last He's explained all these things, and all they heard was that we might sit on some thrones. (laughs) So they're thinking if there's going to be some thrones, they've got to be, at least one of them's got to be on the left, and one of them's got to be on the right. Jesus responds like, first, 
you will indeed drink from my cup. We know in Acts 12, verse 2, James is beheaded by Herod. So he meets his death pretty early. John does not, although he's eventually, by church tradition, exiled, and he dies in exile on the island of Patmos. So he probably went through some suffering, but did not meet his death, at least by martyrdom. And strong church tradition backs that up. Randy? Where do you, like, see that he's talking to James and John now instead of the moms? Isn't he still talking to them? Very interesting. Thank you. In the English, we can't see that. But actually what happens is, even though the mother is the one that makes the request, when he says, he says to them, you don't know what you are asking for, he's not talking to her singularly. He's talking to them as a group. It's a you plural. And actually in the second person, and you can't catch that in English, but he's actually caught on to the fact that this isn't even her idea. Now, every mom would probably want to say, hey, like, you know, how about you take my two sons, one on the left and one on the right? You know, they're good little boys, right? But in Mark's account, it's actually James and John that ask directly. And I think the reason there's that distinction is because even here, everyone could see that they put her up to this. They're hoping that he'll just take pity because it's the mom asking and that somehow he'll grant this request because they're too sheepish to just step up and actually ask for themselves. But he actually talks directly to them and ignores her question at some point when he starts talking directly to them. So thanks for pointing that out because you can't see it in English. You notice also that he says, it's not for me to grant. Jesus is still submitting to the will of the Father and still choosing of his own choice to serve the Father and to submit entirely to him. He actually gives up some of that ability to make certain decisions and choices, and he submits entirely to the Father. That's probably because he is pre-resurrection, pre-glorification for him. That's probably too theological to think about, but it is important to point out that there's a reason that in several places in Scripture, he says, like, that's not for me to grant, or I don't know the time, because he's basically, and we get that in Philippians, that he has his own volition, has surrendered some of that to be subservient to the Father in this bodily form, okay? But again, even after hearing these teachings about first and last, it's very hard for us to live with them without following the temptation of saying, that's all great, now can I be on your left? <laughs> now, the others hear about what's happened. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, so this is kind of like, Call the team together. Let's have a little team meeting here. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Once again, he's reminding them of the theme of what we're talking about here. Servants to one another. Putting yourself in the position of a slave to one another. By his example, just as Christ himself is doing this, he is not asking anyone for something he is not about to go demonstrate bodily in front of everyone else. He's going to lay down his own life for every single one of us. 
And so he's making it very clear that if you want to be great, you, it's not about positions, not about thrones, not about proximity to the throne room. It's about who among us is going to be the greatest servant. And there again is the question that we kind of started with. How many of us are willing to give certain things up, even position, even humility to serve one another, to love one another in that kind of service, even in this room, to be able to submit to one another? That's something that as Americans we have a very hard time doing, even submitting to one another. We want everybody to be equal. Everybody's equal, equally valued, but to say like, I submit to your authority or I submit to what you need me to do to help you. What can I do? Like that is very difficult for us to deal with and to consider because we think there's so much baggage that goes along with things like submission. Like how would we do that without getting abused by it? How do we even just step in to be willing to try in love for one another, how many of us would actually lay down life for another person? And so Jesus here expresses, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Interesting that Jesus comments on what he believes his sacrifice will be about. So he points out, like, this is one of the few statements where he actually kind of adds interpretation to the laying down of his life. Like the purpose and the end goal is to give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom implies or comes from the concept of redeeming somebody who has bought into or has been purchased into slavery. So you could go and ransom them back by making a payment to redeem their freedom. And that is exactly what many theologians later, especially in the Middle Ages, would write about the concept of the ransom of Christ who is coming to pay that debt so that we can be freed and return to full freedom in life. Seems pretty clear that he's rebuking them. I just think we should stop for a moment and think, where do I need to become more of a servant or where am I more concerned about position or my own rights and my own needs? Something that's always like, just a little bit confused me with this is that even how he said it, like, instead whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So it seems he sets up at least the motivation for being a servant and slave is that you want to become greater than other people, which it just seems strange. Like, you know, serve here, but it's okay to want to be great in heaven. Numerous times, especially in Matthew, Jesus has set a goal that sounds like you have to strive to do the very thing that we may look like we're not trying to do. Like, for example, he says, when you give, do not let your right hand know what the left hand is doing, right? So that your heavenly father will see that and will reward you, right? But if you tell other people, you won't get the reward. But he's almost implying that you want to get this reward, so you want to give in secret, right? So you're almost doing it for this other motivation. I don't think Jesus ever shies away from saying, you want this. You want to store treasure in heaven. Like, you want to be in the kingdom. You want to be even first or great. I don't think he shies away from setting that up. Like, we should desire to do that. I mean, it just seems very like he commands a lot of other times of like, no, you should do this. As opposed to like, well, if you want to become great, then do the opposite. So it seems your motivation is like inherently conflicting with your actions. It depends on what life you're talking about. Because I believe that what he's saying is you want to be great there. You want your money there. You want your rewards there. You want your life to be there. Like not here in every one of those examples that I gave you. 
I think he's commending to us what's going to last versus what's not. He says, moth and rust do not destroy, but they destroy here. Like, think wisely. Where do you really want to gain these things? Okay? I also think that the main point, the reason he's doing that is because he, he is commending this to us for us to do it. That's the reason that I kind of disagree with even the commentator that I respect so much when he says that he believes that there is a level of equality across all of heaven. Not only does that go against some verses that I read differently, but I think it's because of what you just pointed out. He seems to be telling us to strive for that in some way, like that's what a wise person would do. A wise person would set it up that way. I don't know that if that's just a device in the language, because it could be, or if he's really saying, yeah, think, think smartly, like this is what you would want. Well, I mean, it might just be also the contrast like, between what in that society they think of as great. I mean, a servant would not be that at all. And so that contrast of now being a servant is great, I think is really significant because those are just like two words that aren't associated. That's exactly right, and that's why I think it could be a device of the language, right? Because you have to contrast something with the other, and Jesus constantly does that. Like, you must love this and hate that. We know that's a device of the language that says love this more and love this less, but in English we translate it as hate, right? Because that's the direct translation, but he's really using a juxtaposition. So we have to understand that there is some interpretation we have to add when we're looking at what he's saying. But even if it's not a divisive language, which I tend to think it is, I still think there's actually something to be said about him commending to us that a wise person would do these things for them. Because he uses that language in several places, especially the language about wisdom. Yes? Well, I just want to yeah, I agree with the idea of what Brittany said, is redefining greatness. And the other thing is, yeah, I don't think, it's, I don't think we should shy away of, like, when we talk about the parable of the good steward, like, or the great steward, if you will. I mean, you want to do very well with these things, as opposed to I, I don't. I don't think we should have any apology or any any sort of thing. Like, no, this is this is real greatness. Is is to go and serve people. Is to give yourself away. Is to you know <laughs> be the last to become first. Like, oh, like I don't think we should have any. That shouldn't irk us. I mean, I do think it's right to say that shouldn't be our greatest motivation. Is so some reward, but Jesus does set up rewards and. They, they certainly factor in there, but it's the, if we really believe that greatness is servitude, then, <laughs> then we won't be worried about the reward. We'll, we'll be trying to become servants. If, if we ever had such a breakout of servanthood, and I suspected the motivation might be just rewards, I'll let you know. Yeah. Uh, and I don't mean just in this room, but I mean across the church. When we get to that point, we'll be preaching a whole other set of sermons. And that's what I think is beautiful about the scriptures is that we always stand between these posts and tension. Right now, most of us in our churches are all on the, I'm just in for me. And I need to learn how to be a servant and learn to submit and learn how to give up what I'm entitled to. If we ever had a swing the other way where people were just going crazy, you know, like serving people too much, and we thought that it might be because they were counting their rewards, you know, like we were doing it for the Visa MasterCard Rewards Program in Heaven, and that's what you were counting, like we'd have a different set of sermons that might not be for a few millennia ahead of us. Philip. One other side like question sort of connected to it is if we take the idea of like it's okay to at least at least be partially motivated by a desire to like 
value greatness in heaven or things in heaven or like putting stuff there so that we serve now um, for that purpose, at least partially motivated by that. Um, and then it connects that to Jesus, which I think is very interesting because like he did serve with his entire life. Because and I've heard this perspective before, well, Jesus really came to serve so that he would be glorified. That one I think is simple. Jesus was the greatest to begin with. He did not even have to go through this. I mean, it's clear from Scripture in numerous places that first he did this voluntarily on his own. No one, it says in John, like, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down voluntarily. But second of all, if you understand just the whole notion of God existing prior to the creation of the time, like, he is God. He's in the triune relationship of God's self, right? There is nothing greater to be gained. Um, and that the sheer act of creating us was just for us, and even the act of saving us is still like, he's not waiting for our glory of him. He couldn't be more glorified than being God. I mean, he's already infinitely glorious before this all began. There's nothing that we add to that. Surly. I had a question, actually. So you're saying that Jesus, before he came to earth, was at the right hand of God. He came to earth, he was crucified, he died, and went back to the same place where he was before. So there was like no reward, there was no like upgrade, no like promotion. (laughs) Jesus was not just at the right hand of God, Jesus was God. Jesus is part, the second person of the Trinity, he is God. He, He doesn't get any upgrade. In fact, if anything, theologically, some people think he actually gets a downgrade. Because when he becomes incarnate, fully God and fully man, many people believe he does not lose the incarnate nature of the God-man being the man is what's added. So he actually, his character may have been altered, but that's way beyond the scope of this, and not everybody agrees with that. But he has always been God, and his essence remains that, and he does not get any like, additional thing for having done this except within God's self, like how the Father chooses to love the Son and more. I mean, how do you love the Son more than infinitely? Um, so, yeah, it probably blows our mind and it's out of the scope, but that's the answer to the question. That's the answer definitively. I've just spoken over 2,000 years of theology in two minutes. There it is, definitively. That's the answer. Brittany? Um, I just think that, like, as far as application, I don't know, it seems like difficult if Jesus Christ is the, like, example. Like, he gave his life for many and like he came to serve and in serving he gave his life and then it's it's just interesting because when we think of the word serve i don't think we always think of it with as hard as it could be because sometimes we like serve each other well we do nice things for people who like us and then that's great or or even if you do something you serve someone who's you know at least polite to you or something and that's fine but then what do you do when you're serving someone who abuses you in return and so like, that's more where I have a hard time with it because it's like, if we're following Jesus, you know, he, he served even though he was abused and continued to do it. And so it's like, for us, we have this idea that, oh, well, maybe I'm doing too much and that this is harming me, so then that's too much to do. But if we go with the example, then it's not too much. Right, because even our life, even the breath that we have, he would say, is a gift from God. And what you're going to inherit in the end is more than that anyway, would probably be his response. I don't want to speak on his behalf, but I can't imagine giving Jesus a book on boundaries. You know, he'd probably just laugh and go like, who made up this ridiculous word, right? <laughs> okay, that's just me once again reacting against that book. But, but the idea is correct. You're totally right in that way. But how does it translate to us? 
we can't just go directly to it and say, yes, if you're in an abusive situation where your submission is totally abusive, you should you know, just endure it for that purpose, although some people do. We call that martyrdom. I mean, some people will either have the gift of martyrdom or will endure martyrdom for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of service to others, for the sake of saving others, like literally with food and water, for the sake of bringing Bibles, for the sake of anything, you know, just to rescue people and to save their lives, they will give up their own. All right, we got one last comment I think there was. Yeah, Jeremy. Uh, the other thing I, I think, and we didn't, like, we didn't mention at all, but their indignance in the first sentence, it's not because they see how ridiculous their question was, it's because they were mad, they didn't think of it first. And that's what's so funny about it. Like, I didn't think about the left hand thing. And so I, I think that adds kind of that extra layer of, um, yeah, they weren't righteously indignant. They were just kind of pissed that they didn't think about it first. Yeah, I think this whole section would just be titled like, the sons of Zebedee call shotgun. You know, like, I think that's, that's how it should be in our scriptures, right? So that's what the whole thing is all about, is they call shotgun, and the others are, like, so mad they didn't think of it first. I think that's very insightful, Jeremy, and, and, it, and, it, and it's dead on. There's a number of people who pick it up, and I should have as well. Let's leave it right here and close up in prayer. God, we pray that you make us, remake us, and I dare say break us if necessary so that we could start to see the places that we lack servanthood, that we cling to a sense of entitlement, that we cling to a sense that we are the people who make our own fortunes in this world, that we forget that all things come from your hand. And Lord, we don't live in light of that, so please work through our hearts to change our very perspectives, the way we see ourselves and each other. Lord, that might mean we need to strip aside things that we believe, whether it's just different myths that we've grown up with about the worth of work or our own entitlement to things or the way that we've been taught just growing up in a wealthy country or the way we look at others who don't have. There's a lot of sin in our lives and we want to confess that openly to you. That for the most part, Lord, we live our lives entirely for ourselves. Lord, this wisdom is something that we can ponder over. But I pray that it goes from our minds into our hearts and that the Holy Spirit begins to work inside of us. That we would learn to submit. That we would learn to serve. That we would give up and walk humbly with you. pray this in your name. Amen.